The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Resurrection Sunday at Sacred City Church Online. My name is Justin and I'm one of the pastors here. And this weekend is always uh, the high, really the high point of my year. It's one of my favorite, we- it is my favorite weekend of the entire year. It's the weekend that we celebrate and remember the greatest weekend in the history of the world. And uh, as we think back over that weekend, there has never been a darker day in human history than the Friday where mankind crucified the sinless Son of God. Nor a more hopeless Saturday than the Saturday where Jesus lay dead in the grave. But it's with that bleak and black backdrop where the brightness of Resurrection Sunday shines forth. There has never been a more exciting and celebratory day than that Sunday morning where Jesus shook off death like an old coat and walked out of that borrowed tomb. See, the reality of that day gives hope to all mankind. That day, Resurrection Sunday, our great enemy, death, was dealt a death blow that reverberates down the halls of history and echoes into eternity. Now, I said that this is kind of usually my favorite weekend of the year. I still hope it's going to be, but um, this year is a lot different, right? We don't get to gather together in our Good Friday service. And as a pastor, my life's calling is to shepherd souls, the she- shepherd the souls that God has entrusted to me. And on that Good Friday gathering, I get to sit and be amongst our sheep and I get to look around and I get to hear and I get to see how you're visibly affected by the telling of the good story of the Good Friday story, of the singing, of the scripture reading. And I could see how you, you, you get somber and you get thoughtful and you meditate on the death of Christ and we walk out silent and there's a weight put on us. But then as a pastor and as a shepherd, I get to come in Sunday morning and, and there's Easter lilies everywhere and it's bright and all the black curtains have been replaced with white curtains and the, and the candle gets escorted back in and placed uh, on the table and, the, and Jesus Christ literally, we're reminded, is resurrected and the, and the worship experience is celebratory and it's exciting and everybody's in their Easter best and it's beautiful and I can see hope rise on your face. I get to see that as a pastor and that does such good work in my soul. 
And most of that is lost this morning. Most of that is lost to us this weekend because of the coronavirus. We can virtually gather, but I can't see your face. Um, I don't know where your, your state of your soul is at, and, uh, but I am praying for you. I hope that this online gathering can give you hope and stir some worship in you. Um, I know it won't be the same, but it's my prayer that the Spirit would use it nonetheless. So let me pray for us, and we're just going to jump right into our text this morning. Oh, gracious God, we come before you this morning and we seek more of what you've already given us, and that's grace. We need grace upon grace upon grace. Grace to sustain us in this dark time. We need wisdom to combat our foolishness. We need insight. We need the spirit without measure. We need all of the things that you can provide us, Father. And most importantly, we need hope, hope that springs eternal in our soul. So Father, this morning as I come to your text and I attempt to preach it to your people, would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? Would it be all of you and none of me? Would you help your servant? A servant who struggles with his own flesh, his own insecurities, his own fears, his own doubts, his own unbelief. Would you help me preach the gospel that I know to be true, that I know to be the best news in all the universe? And would you encourage the souls of your people, mine included this morning? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we are finding ourselves in Colossians chapter two. This morning, we're gonna take a deep dive in verses 11 through 15. Before we, but before we do, I kind of need to overview a little bit of a theme that the apostle is laying down for us in the first 15 verses of chapter 15. He starts uh, verse 11 with in him, and that's picking up this theme that's going on in the first 15 verses. Um, when you read verses one through 15, you see a familiar set of phrases that kind of keep popping up. Paul loves these phrases because they represent a unique biblical doctrine that needs to be understood in order for the gospel to really make sense for us. The phrases are in him and with him, and they're repeated eight times in the first half of chapter two. Now, here's the big idea. Jesus is the son of God. Now, he came to this earth. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sin, sinless life. Then he died on a Roman cross to be resurrected to eternal life three days later. Then this same Jesus hung out with his disciples for 40 days. He was seen by over 400 witnesses before leaving this earth and traveling back to heaven to rule the universe at the right hand of God the Father. Now, the question is, okay, cool, that's really exciting. Jesus, the Son of God, came and did all those things. But what does that have to do with you? Well, the answer to that question is what Paul is trying to get at in the book of Colossians, and specifically in the first half of this chapter. And this is why he keeps using phrases like, in him and with him. See, in some mysterious way, Christians have a supernatural union with Christ. So when Jesus was working, we were working in him. When Jesus was living, we were living in him. When Jesus was dying, we were dying 
in him. When Jesus was being raised to new life, we were being raised to new life in him. And as Jesus is reigning in heaven, we will reign in heaven. As Jesus was glorified, we will be glorified in him. See, many people don't understand this. And I mean, many people that say things like this, well, how could Jesus's resurrection, right? How could his life, death, and resurrection have anything to do with me? What does one man's acts have anything to do with another man? What does one man's disobedience have anything to do with another man's? What does one man's obedience have anything to do with another man's? How could one man's righteousness make another person righteous? Doesn't make sense. Well, it doesn't make sense at first thought, but if you think a little bit deeper and you understand this biblical doctrine I'm about to lay out, it does make sense. It makes perfect sense. See, the answer to those questions, how could one man's action be counted on the behalf of another man? The answer to that question is based upon a very important doctrine called the doctrine of federal headship. Federal headship. Now, we don't use that word too often. If you think of federal, you probably think of the federal government, right? And that's exactly what you should think. See, federal headship is, refers to the representation of a group united under a federation or a covenant. For example, a country's president may be seen as the federal head of their nation. He represents us and speaks on our behalf before the rest of the world. Now, okay, I get that. Why is this important for us? Well, Scripture speaks of mankind being united under two federal heads, okay? The first federal head, he's the federal head of, human, of, of humans by right of creation. Think of Adam and Eve. Adam is the federal head of mankind because he was created first in God's image, okay? That means that Adam represents us before God. He was our federal head. In one sense, all of us were in Adam. Our DNA was already present in Adam himself. And Adam, as our federal head, his actions counted as our own. Think about it. If our government, if our, the people that we put in our federal government, if they vote to take us to war, our whole country is at war right? Their actions count as our actions. The same is true for Adam. Adam's actions count as our actions. Now, okay, so what were Adam's actions? We need to understand a little bit of the story. Well, first off, we need to know that Adam was created beautiful and Adam was created good. And he was created imago Dei in the image of God. And that meant he had immense power to do good in the world and to bring blessing and human flourishing into the world. That God literally gave Adam and Eve the whole of creation to cultivate and to create inside of. He told them to be fruitful and multiply and bless all of creation with their presence and with their creation. But inside that, that beautiful blessing, he gave them one warning. He said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, God said, you will surely die. Now, first, let's just say what a lovely picture of human flourishing this is. Just how simple it is. There's a world full of yeses and only one no. 
I long to live in a world like that. What a blessing. God says, you can do anything you want. Just don't do this one thing. How gloriously simple and pleasant. And yet, in the midst of that simplicity, mankind desires the one thing that it can't have. And being deceived by Satan, Adam and Eve chose to do the one thing they were told not to do. And in that moment, they received upon themselves and upon all of their posterity, all of mankind, because he, Adam was the federal head, they received the promised curse and they fell from their state of sin, sinless perfection. <clears throat> now remember, God said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Death was the result. But what we see right away is death looked a lot differently than one might expect. If death is promised, I would expect you disobey, you, you, you disobey God and boom, lightning strikes you, you're obliterated, God's gonna start over. But that's not how God did it. The first thing we see is that Adam and Eve, they die spiritually. They die relationally. Something inside of them just withers up and dies. They all of a sudden fear God and not fear God in an awe-inspired, worshipful way, but they hide themselves in the bushes when God comes to spend time with them. They feel a distance between them and God. Something's broken with them and God. They also, there's a brokenness between their own relationship. There's shame. And before they were naked and not ashamed, now they're ashamed. Adam's blaming Eve. Eve's blaming Adam. Their relationship gets fractured. And then, of course, death, the physical reality of death does find them much later and they do die and from dust they came and dust they return as they are put in the earth. Now what we see here in chapter two of Colossians is Paul is picking up on this doctrine and he says that all of us, all human beings since Adam and Eve have been born into this fallen state. We're all under their headship and we're born in their likeness. That means all of us are born from our mother's womb, spiritually dead to God. And physical death is always an enemy that is right outside our door. Now, out of this kind of spiritual reality, we all live. And as a consequence of being born spiritually dead, we all sin. That means we follow our federal head, Adam, and we disobey God in a million different ways. A lot of people say this, the, this doctrine is the one doctrine that can be categorically, scientifically proven, right? Men and women sin, period, right? We love other things more than we love God. We break the Ten Commandments. We break the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave us, loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself. 
We don't do the good things that God asks us to do. And so in the words of Paul from our text this morning, we are all, quote, dead in our trespasses and sins. We are spiritually dead to God. We are dead to our ideal self. Like we can't be what we were naturally created to be. We can't be the sinless, perfect versions of ourselves. So we're dead to God. We're dead to our ideal self. And the threat of physical death is always outside our door. And not just the threat, but the certainty of it. We will all die. Now, I know this is a depressing reality. That's kind of a Good Friday thing, right? But don't worry, we've got good news here too. In this story, in the Old Testament, God chose a man, Abraham, Abram at first, and he told Abe, I will make a great nation out of your family line if you obey me. I will bless the world through your family line. And this was called a covenant, a contract, if you will, between God and Abraham and his descendants. And back then, you didn't just sign your name on a contract. The sign of the covenant was actually circumcision. It was the cutting away of the foreskin. And the sign of the covenant, it represented the sins of the person being cut away from them and taking away from them. But this sign of circumcision actually pointed to a greater reality, one that the Old Testament writers called a circumcision of the heart. Now, obviously, you can't physically circumcise the heart. What it meant was that the fleshly, fallen, sinful desire that we are born with we're born with this desire to turn away from God and do our own thing, that thing would be removed. It would be cut away. It would be taken away from them like the foreskin was removed from a child. Now, what Paul is doing in our text this morning, he's showing us that that ancient prophecy, that ancient covenant, that ancient blessing that was spoken over Abraham has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The new federal head has come and he is here to reverse the work of Adam. Jesus is here to reverse the curse and in the words of Tolkien from Lord of the Rings, to make all the sad things come untrue. So as we once were all in Adam as our federal head, we can now all be in Christ as our new federal head. See, Adam was our federal head at birth, but Christ can be your new federal head at new birth when you put your faith in him. Now let's look at our text. Let me walk us through that this morning. Chapter two, verse 11, in him, see that union, see that federal head? We have a new federal head. It's Christ. In Jesus also you were circumcised. Uh oh, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, this is talking about putting your faith in Christ. You are united with Christ. And when you get united with Christ, your flesh, your sinful nature gets cut off from you, cut away from you. It's crucified with Christ on the cross. 
Paul's saying this is the circumcision of Christ. It's what the circumcision in the Old Testament was pointing to. You can have a new federal head in Christ whose new actions count as your own. As you were counted in Adam before, now you can be counted in Christ. Now let's keep going. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, just as the old covenant, first off, you entered into the covenant by faith. Abraham obeyed God. He, he believed God and then therefore he obeyed God. That's faith working in Abraham. So faith, let's say this, faith accepts the covenant with God. But then obedience is required. He had to circumcise his child, right? And circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Well, it seems like the apostle Paul is doing the same thing here. If we want a new federal head, Christ, we put our faith in him. And then here's the new sign and seal of the new covenant, baptism. And in baptism, when we're baptized, we're, we're being buried like Christ in his death. And then we're being raised like Christ in his resurrection. And so the Christian, how do I become a Christian? You put your faith in Jesus Christ and then you get baptized. You follow Jesus into his death and into his resurrection. And then we are no longer, here's the beauty of it. Here's the good news. We are no longer in Adam. We have a new federal head. We are now in him, in Jesus. <clears throat> that means we have been crucified with Jesus. We have died with Jesus. We have been buried with Jesus. We have been raised with Jesus. Now I want you to remember all of the curses, all of the, the negative things that we were in because of Adam, right? We were born spiritually dead. We were natural born sinners who would rather have our own way than to submit to God's way, right? But when you turn to Christ, all of that gets reversed. All of that gets reversed. Now we're no longer spiritually dead. We are made alive with Jesus. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, this is how we were born, God made alive together with him. God made alive together with him. Now, the first thing that we need to ask ourselves, if we're born spiritually dead, what can a dead person do to bring themselves back to life? Right? The correct answer is absolutely nothing. If you're dead, even if a dead person just wants to get resuscitated, they can do nothing. But what do they need to be resuscitated? They need somebody from the outside coming and working on them, performing CPR or putting the, 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 the shocker on their chest, right? They need something from outside of them working on their behalf. Well, the same thing is true of us who are born spiritually dead. And the scripture, Paul the apostle tells us specifically what makes us alive. It isn't the, the behavior or the obedience or the, anything in the dead person. It is someone working outside of him. It is God himself that God speaks and brings us to life. God gives us the first fruits of our faith and we respond in that faith and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That God himself makes us 
alive. It doesn't come as a result of our own work in any way. It is a gift of sovereign and sheer grace. God makes us alive, but there's more. So I want you to see right here, this, the, the sinful nature that we were born into, this, this spiritual reality of being dead to God. When God makes us alive and we respond in the faith that he gives us, that we are made spiritually alive in him immediately. We are alive to God. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful reality. It's a beautiful truth, but there's even more that's needed. See, we were born sinful and therefore we have sinned. You don't sin and therefore become sinful. You're born a sinner and out of that reality, you sin. What that means for us is one, we, need, we have more than a sinful nature that needs to be dealt with. He, he dealt with our sinful nature when he made us alive in Christ. But there's also this long list. We've got a history, right? This long list of all the ways that we've sinned against God. I want you to think about that. Every ugly word you've spoken. Every line of gossip about another person. Every lustful thought, every selfish action, every racist impulse, every little lie, every time that you chose to do what you wanted to do rather than what God told you to do, every single infraction of God's law has been written down. Meticulous records have been kept. And that record, Paul says, stands against us with its legal demands. What do you mean it stands against us? Let me just put it in a simple term like this. There's a warrant out for your arrest. Every time you disobeyed God, the lawyer, the legal system, was keeping track of that. And there is a warrant out for your arrest. Because why? God himself is holy. God himself is just. God himself is righteous. God cannot look past our sins and our violations. He cannot turn the other way when we sin against him. See, there's a warrant out for our arrest and the punishment of our sin is still the same punishment that Adam had. The punishment is death. Now, a lie is worthy of death? Depends on who you lie against, but every lie is ultimately a lie against God. See, there are no small sins because there is no small God to sin against. When we sin, we're sinning against goodness itself. We're sinning against glory itself. We're sinning against righteousness and truth and honesty and beauty itself. So we're sinning against this glorious, gracious, good God. And so every small infraction is against a glorious God. And so yes, it is worthy of annihilation. It's worthy of destruction. It's worthy of death itself. The question is now, even people that come to faith, you come to faith in Jesus Christ, right? You get this sinful nature cut away from you, praise God. But what about the record? 
What about the list? What about the long list of all the things I've done? What are we going to do about this record of debt that stands against us with its legal demands? Well, in the same way a spiritually dead person can do nothing to bring themselves back to life, we can do nothing to pay back God for all the wrong that we've done. But thankfully, God himself once again has done everything we need to have that record washed clean, have that record erased. And he's done it all in Jesus. Look at our text this morning, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, praise God, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Well, how did he do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he cancel the record? How did he do that? This he set aside, look, nailing it to the cross. The list of our sins has been nailed to the cross. Now I want you to think about that. What was nailed to the cross, right? We, we, we know the story of Good Friday. It isn't that there was a piece of paper nailed to the cross, right? We know who was nailed to the cross. The sinless son of God was nailed to the cross. But this is the beauty that we need to see. Our sins were put on Jesus. Jesus became sin for us. And what he's, what he's doing on the cross is he's taking our record of wrongs, our list of all of our wrongdoing, all of our mouth, every bad thing we've ever done. And he's taking it to the cross and he's taking it in himself and he's being crucified and he's dying and he's paying the punishment that we deserve. He's paying it for us. God took our list of many sins. He put it on Jesus and he crucified it on the cross. That's why we can be forgiven. So we get a new nature when we put our faith in Christ. God makes us alive. God wipes away all of our past sins. But Paul shows us one more powerful thing that God does through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. Paul says this, God disarmed the rulers. Disarmed. That means our enemy. Remember that death was outside our door and wanted us any time. And death, even death, you know, uh, mythically is you know, depicted with a scythe, right? A weapon that wants to take your life and carry you off to the underworld. Well, God says here in the resurrection of Christ, he disarmed death. He took away the weapon of death. Keep reading. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. That means death, sin, our sinful flesh, the devil, all of it has been disarmed and defeated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul writes in another place in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 to 57, he says this, the sting of death is sin and the power 
of sin is the law. But he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you take a deeper look at that Greek word, it's thanatos, it's death from 1 Corinthians 15. It helps us kind of understand what it was that Jesus actually defeated. Paul says he, he took the sting out of death. Well, what did he do? Well, first off, death there means two things. First, it means death of the body, like natural, right? The separation, whether whenever we, whenever we die and there's a separation of the soul from the body and our life on earth is ended. But it also means death comprising all the miseries arising from sin. So that includes evil, that includes suffering, that includes physical death, that includes a spiritual death, loss of life that's consecrated to God. And it, just, and it also encompasses the threat of eternal death or hell itself. And so Paul, when he's saying Jesus took the sting out of death, he says, yes, he's, he, it means physical death, but it also means spiritual death. It also means the threat of hell. It also means evil and all the injustice in the world. And Paul's saying kind of the same thing in Colossians. If we put these two things together, that Jesus has disarmed death. He's taken the sting out of death. He has put death and the devil to shame by using their, their own consequence, their own creation, their own um, death itself against them and defeated them with it. So through his death and resurrection, he has taken away the sting or the weapon of death. Now, what does that specifically mean? Death's sting, its real power comes from the law. That's what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are guilty of breaking God's law like Adam and Eve were. And so we deserve physical death and eternal damnation or eternal separation from God. And yet Jesus becoming our sin, becoming the record of wrong that's, that's judiciously placed against us, Jesus becomes it. He hangs on the cross, he dies, he pays the punishment and he takes the ultimate sting of death for us. Now, does death still sting us? Yes, a little bit, it does. If when you experience the loss of a loved one, it still stings. It, we feel its pain, we feel its effect, we still grieve the momentary loss. But as scripture tells us, we grieve as those who have a hope. So there's a, a greater sting, an ultimate sting that it's been taken away from death. See, death's eternal sting has been taken away from Jesus, by Jesus. Jesus says he has the keys to death, hell, and the grave. See, death can't rob us of our eternal life. In the words of the poet, George Herbert, he says this, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. Think about that. Our bodies die, but they die like a seed dies in the soil, only to spring to new life again and become far more fruitful than what they were before. The same is true for us. Now listen, this is life and death stuff we're talking about here. It's a living hope, as Peter tells us. 
people sometimes act like hope is some kind of second-rate virtue. Listen, if you lose hope, you lose everything. If you lose hope, you lose faith. If you lose hope, you despair. If you lose hope, people kill themselves when they lose hope. If you lose hope, you lose everything. And Paul is showing us here, we have an unshakable living hope in Jesus because Jesus conquered death, sin, and the grave, and he rose victorious, and so will we. That Jesus has taken the sting out of death. That Jesus has disarmed death. He's disarmed Satan. That he can kill our bodies, but he can do nothing to our souls. And one day, and there's nothing our enemy can do about it, one day we will be united with Christ and united with God in a way that we can't even imagine now that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can imagine what God has in store for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And all of that is available to us in only one way. Transfer your federal headship out from Adam and under Christ. And obviously, I, we already said... What can I do to do that? Nothing, but do you feel hope rising in your heart? Do you feel faith? Do you believe that Jesus did this on your behalf? Then God has already made you alive. And now your response to him, put your faith in Jesus Christ and, and be baptized. Be baptized. That's the next step for you. So on this resurrection Sunday morning, let us have hope because we, when we look at the resurrection of one Jewish man, one Nazarene 2,000 years ago, we're seeing into our future. We're seeing into the promised future that we're gonna have, that we are going to beat death too because Christ beat it for us and we were in him when he did it. That's the good news of the gospel this morning. I pray that it would stir your heart to worship Jesus, our Lord. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your great grace that you've given us. I thank you for the living hope that we find in Jesus Christ. I thank you that you've cut away our sinful nature. You've circumcised our heart. You've given us the faith to believe. You've nailed our record of wrongs to the cross and forgiven us of them. And you've disarmed every ruler. You've disarmed Satan, you've disarmed death, you've disarmed sin, and you reign supreme. And we, your people, long for your second coming, and we long to see you with our eyes, where we no longer will have to believe on you in faith, that we will see you with our eyes. We long for that day. Father, I pray that your people would be filled with hope eternal this evening, this afternoon, this morning, wherever it is they're watching. In Christ's powerful name we pray, amen and amen.